is the greatest longing of the human heart. God's love is the greatest provision for that human longing. And yet there is a tragic disconnect from the longing and the source because you don't know His love. You see, the more we become convinced and accept the sovereignty of God over every event in our life, the less we're tempted to question His love for us. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. Glad you could join us today for a message from the series, Think, Christianity in High Definition. Last week in part one of this message on the doctrine of God, Pastor Trent introduced us to one of five attributes of God, His sovereignty. Let's join in as Pastor Trent continues this teaching about God's wisdom, goodness, holiness, and love. Here's Pastor Trent Griffith. Here's the second attribute. God is wise. Trust Him. God is wise. Trust Him. Romans 11, 33 through 36 says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Then he asked the question, who has known the mind of the Lord? Answer? No one. Let's all say that together. I'll ask the question. You, you shout it out loud. Who has known the mind of the Lord? All right, so let me ask the second question. Who's been his counselor? If you really believed that no one has, you would never question anything God does. People that know their God don't come to God to counsel God. People that come to God come to get his counsel. Part of the job description of a pastor, you got to be a counselor, right? Do you know what I've discovered? There are so many people that want counseling who are not interested in God's counsel. Because when you tell them what God says, they're like, well, let's keep meeting. <laughs> Dude, just do it. No, I'd rather figure out a different way. And you start to counsel God. And they want God in counseling. God is wise. Just trust Him. Now, the wisdom of man contends with the wisdom of God. The book of James talks about two types of wisdom. There's an earthly wisdom. That's the fallible wisdom of men. We think we you know, know how the world works and what, how other people should treat us and how much money we should make. And, and, what kind, and, and then there's the wisdom that is from above. Only those who know their God are connected to the wisdom that is from above. And those who know that God is wise will trust that God's way is always best. Here's a definition for the attribute that we call the wisdom of God. God always acts in a way to bring about the highest possible good. And in case you're wondering, not only could his acts not be done better, a better way to do them could never be imagined. That's how wise God is. He doesn't need your input. We just need to simply trust what he is doing. And if you are acting like a fool, flying in the face of God's wisdom, it is because you are not thinking rightly about the wisdom of God. Now, we are not 
Pollyanna in our thinking as Christians. We know that bad stuff happens. Every time you and I are faced with a tragedy, it tests our confidence in the wisdom of God. That there are tragedies, tragic stories in this room right now. Some of you went through tragedies this week. Some of you went through a tragedy 30 years ago. And 30 years ago, you stopped trusting God. Andrew and I were in Orlando uh, a couple of weeks ago. We were leading a marriage conference there. And we met a couple named Rick and Judy Taylor. They were actually our co-speakers uh, during that conference. Uh, Rick is a pastor out in California. He's in his 60s now, but... He told us a story of when they were a young couple in 1979, they, they had three boys, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And they'd surrendered their lives to ministry, and, and Rick and Judy were leading a ministry at a campground where couples would come and be refreshed and encouraged and meet the Lord. And, and uh, Rick shared one morning uh, in 1979 after breakfast, he stayed there in his office to work, and Judy took those three boys back to the cabin to clean up and get ready for the day. And as she was working in the house, the boys said, can we go outside and ride our tricycles and bicycles? And, and she said, sure. And one of those boys, the oldest one, uh, Kyle, actually led his two brothers away from the cabin and down a path and up a hill and down a hill and to a place there were, where there was a lake. There was a man-made dam that someone had built kind of across a little section of that lake there. And Eric said, let's go... Uh, to the other side of the lake and there was a little gap in the dam and, and um, did I say Eric? It was Kyle. Kyle jumped over, the six-year-old jumped over the gap and the four-year-old jumped over the gap, the two-year-old. Eric didn't quite make it. Fell into the water, began to struggle. The oldest one jumped in to try to save his little brother. The four-year-old uh, was told to go back and get mom, we need help and he was kind of paralyzed by the trauma that was taking place there and he couldn't go anywhere. And after about 30 minutes, Judy realized she hadn't heard those boys playing in a while and so she sensed something was wrong and she ran. And by the time that she got to that lake, about 30 minutes later, she said the water was completely still. She only found that middle boy there on the shore crying. She asked him what's going on and she said, my brothers are dying. She dove into that water and began a frantic search for those two boys and finally she found the torso of that youngest child, the two-year-old, float to the top, just a little bit of air in his lungs. She pulled him out and she began CPR there on the shore and she was able to get a faint pulse and a faint breath and then she was faced with a dilemma that no mom should ever have to face. Do I rush my youngest son to the hospital in hopes of saving his life or do I continue to search for my oldest child. She took that boy back to the emergency room and that boy survived. While they were in the emergency room, she got a call from a neighbor that had found her oldest son drowned, stuck under a tree in that lake. Rick and Judy went on to write a book called When Life Changes Forever. And it's all about their journey, about whether or not they would be able to trust that God always acts in a way to bring about the highest possible good, even when you and I don't know what he's up to. There's tragedies in this room. Can you trust him? Even when it doesn't make sense to you? 
because you're thinking right and you know God. Because people that know their God stand firm in the face of tragedy and they take action to do what God has called them to do. They rest and they continue to risk. And not only could his ways not be done any better, a better way could not even be imagined. The faith that it takes to trust the wisdom of God. Here's the third attribute of God. God is good and because he is good, seek him. What is the goodness of God? We'll define it this way. God is the final standard of good. And all that God is and all that God does is worthy of approval. Do you know what we do when we come in the first 35 minutes of the service? We are singing our faces off and Micah's up here leading us. Do you know what we are doing? We are giving approval to God. God, you are who you say you are. And you're worthy not only of my singing, but of my thinking and my feeling and my living and my taking action. That's what we're doing. All that God is and does is worthy of approval. So the question is, who, who decides what's good? How do we determine right and wrong? The, the reason that something is good is because that's what God is. And that's what God does. And I am only doing good when I am doing something God would do. And when I am doing something that God would not do, I am not doing good. In 2010, January of 2010, it was the second year of this church, by the way. Andrea and I had left Life Action Ministries. We had a ministry traveling around the country and speaking in hundreds of different churches and stuff. Pretty comfortable and pretty happy with what was going on. We left that in order to risk something. To start a church in Granger, Indiana with 13 people that never met us and we'd never met them. And we just sensed that this is something God wants us to do because this church needed a Bible preaching, gospel saturated, Christ centered church in this community. And so we took a risk to do that. We're working hard and, and so little resources and no building and no budgets and no money and people looking at us like we're not quite sure we want to follow you because you're weird and preach a long time. And, um, it, and so it was hard. If you were around, was it hard? It was hard. Remember those folding brown metal chairs? That was hard. And so we're like a year and a half into this thing. And I'm, ha I'm having a really good day. It's January. There's a few really good days in January around here. So I was actually at a Starbucks and I've got a venti caramel macchiato. I'm about halfway through it. And my cell phone rings. I'm having a great day. And it's Andrea. So I answered and the first words that came out of her mouth were these. I have cancer. What? She said, yeah, I just got a, a call from a secretary that says you have an appointment with your oncologist tomorrow. Andrea said, I don't have an oncologist. She said, you do now. She'd gone in for a routine checkup and bam, cancer. And in that moment, I'm thinking, this is not good. Coffee good, friend good, cancer not good. And I begin to think, Lord, I am trying to serve you here. 
I'm trying to do something good. I'm taking risk. I'm standing firm. I'm taking action. And is this the way you treat people that try to serve you? I didn't marry a wife with cancer. I didn't try to start a church with a wife with cancer. And we're trying to homeschool four kids and it's busy and crazy. And it's like, Lord, why? Can I trust you? We got word out to our friends to be praying because we didn't know what this journey was going to look like. And the next day I got an email. He was just encouraging us and let us know he was praying for us. And at the end of the email, he attached a scripture that I had never seen before in my Bible. This is what it was. Nahum 1, 7. Did you have a quiet time in Nahum this morning? <laughs> Nahum 1, 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. We grabbed hold of that verse. We memorized that verse. We prayed that verse. We wrote that verse all over hospital walls and everything we could find because we knew what was at stake. If I couldn't get past the first four words of that verse, we weren't making it through this. And there wasn't going to be a church in Granger. And there, we, we weren't going to continue to serve him and trust him and seek him. Because what is at stake is whether or not I am convinced that God is good even when I face something I deem to be not good. Now, fast forward, that was five years ago. Andrea is doing fine, surgery, tumor removed, no chemo, no radiation. And the Lord was good. But listen, the Lord would have been good if he had taken Andrea. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the... When do you need to know He's good? In the day of trouble. Do you see it? In the day of trouble, there has to be an absolute confidence that God is good. And He knows those who take refuge in Him, run to Him, or those that flee from Him, believing the lie that He is not good. Not only is he good, he's the source of everything good. Psalm 84 verses 11 and 12 say, For the Lord our God is a sun and a shield. Those are verses that Andrew and I hang on to in the middle of February. Um, a sun and a shield, because we need some sun around here in February, amen? And we need a shield from snow. So we, we're holding on to those verses. And the Lord's good because he is a sun and a shield. And the Lord bestows favor and honor. Look at this. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Do you have a hard time believing that God is so good that he would actually give you something good? Is there something good that you think God is withholding from you? It's not true. Some of you long to have a mate and you think, Lord, I just want to be married. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And his way is always best to bring about the highest possible good. So whatever I am putting in the no good bucket that God would consider good, I need to change my bucket. 
He does not withhold anything good from those who walk uprightly. And sometimes the good thing that God brings comes in a different package than we would envision it. Do you remember the story of Joseph in, in Genesis? Sold into slavery by his stupid brothers, thrown in a pit, falsely accused, forgotten by the baker and the butler and the candlestick maker or however that thing goes. He's in prison and he's doing everything to serve God. And at the end of his lifetime, he stands before his brothers and he has an opportunity to assassinate everyone who ever did evil against him. And he looked at him and said, hey, God is good. And what you meant to cause me evil, God meant it for good. What a perspective on God Joseph had. He thought right, so he felt right, and he did right. The good thing that God brings is often different than the good that we envision. Here's the fourth thing. Because <laughs> we haven't learned anything yet, have we? And we're, just, we're still looking for some solid truth here in church this morning. So number four, God is holy. Fear him. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see the story of a man who got a vision of God that was higher than the vision that he'd had before. And he got a, a vision of God on his throne. And in that throne room, this is what he heard. He heard angels around that God singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Lord is holy. What is the holiness of God? It is the fact that God is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Because God is holy... God hates. Do you have a category in your brain for the hatred of God? Do you have a category in your brain for a God who is angry? It's the God of the Bible. Because God is holy and he always is devoted to seeking his own honor, God hates what is evil, and he responds with anger to all sin and rebellion. God hates everything that threatens his honor and his glory and his holiness. God's holiness requires judgment of everything that he does not declare holy. So that's a problem, you know why? Look at the person next to you, do they look very holy? Impressed? No. Is there a whole lot of holiness going on in here right now? You know what that does? That should strike the fear of God in the person sitting next to you. Not you, of course, but the person sitting next to you who is not very holy should be sitting here quivering over the statements that I just made that God will incinerate everything that he does not declare holy. So... We've got a problem. What's the solution to the problem? We need God to declare unholy things holy. How does he do that? 
The only way he can declare something unholy holy is that if he declared something holy unholy. When did he do that? On the cross. He treated Jesus as if he was unholy. And he tortured him and he crucified him so that I, who am unholy, can be treated and declared holy. The holiness of God should strike fear in my heart. Now, if somehow, now that you have been declared holy, you've got this attitude of, well, I can go out and do whatever I want to. No, 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 no. You do not understand the holiness of God because those that know their God will pursue a personal holiness. First Peter chapter one, verses 16 and 17 says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Then he says this, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. And some of you may say, yeah, it's talking about that positional holiness thing. I get that. It's like, I'm not really holy, but God kind of pretends like I am, you know. That's kind of that positional holiness. No, no, it's, that's a, that, that is a doctrinal truth. That you, it's a very messed up way of saying it, but there is a doctrinal positional holiness. But this is talking about our personal conduct. That we are to conduct ourselves in fear and not allow unholy things to contaminate that which has been declared holy holy. And I am to live my life striving for personal holiness. Those that know God is holy will live within the boundaries of what is holy. Those that know God is, is holy will guard themselves from being contaminated from the unholiness in this world and refuse to indulge their sensual appetites with unholy things. People that know their God will guard what they allow through the gate of their senses. And believers should fear the fatherly discipline of a holy God when they are conducting themselves in unholy ways. Do you know that God is holy? Here's the last attribute God is love. I figured we'd have cheering and applause at that point after we got through holiness. Aren't you glad there's one more? God is love. Now listen, there, people that, we are all, it's, we're like a, a grandfather clock that bangs the side out of the clock with the pendulum, the way the church swings between its emphasis on holiness and love and grace and truth and we get it wrong so often. That there is no competition between the holiness of God and the love of God. It is because God is holy that he has a holy love. Psalm 145 verses seven and eight say this, they shall put forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is, and then he gives us four things. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, that's patience, and abounding in steadfast love. So God has a gracious love, which is his goodness toward those that deserve only punishment. That's what grace is. Gracious love toward those that deserve only punishment. And then look, a merciful love toward those that are in crisis and distress and tragedy. And a patient love toward those that continually sin over and over and over in your slow progress. God's patient because of his love. 
Love is the greatest longing of the human heart. God's love is the greatest provision for that human longing. And yet there is a tragic disconnect from the longing and the source. You know why? Because you don't know his love. Some of you have never felt loved. You haven't been treated with love. You were abandoned or abused as a kid. You just kind of had a victim mentality, always felt like the world was against you. And because of that, do you know what you've tried to do? You've tried to find love through the acceptance, the approval, or the attention of others, and you'll do whatever it takes to get it, even if it is a mythical, false, fleeting love. And the reason that it always leaves you empty is because you've never connected with the only source of love that can meet the deepest longing of your soul. And that is the unconditional approval of God that says, I love you. Is that kind of love even possible? You see, the more we become convinced and accept the sovereignty of God over every event in our life, the less we're tempted to question his love for us. And so we can turn that love back and adore him. What is the love of God? The love of God is God freely and eternally giving of himself to benefit those in desperate need of what only he can provide. You and I have a need that can only be met by the love of God. And then when God meets it, do you know what he does? He expects us to imitate his love. This is one of the communicable attributes because God is love. I am now to imitate that love out to others. First John chapter four, seven through 11, and this is the last verse. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Why does he love? Because he knows something. Because he's thinking right. Therefore, he's feeling right and doing right. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If you're not loving your husband and your wife with a pure, holy, sacrificial love that says your needs are more important than mine, I'm not gonna be sovereign here. I'm gonna lay down my rights for control and I'm gonna serve you. If that's not the kind of love you have, your problem is not that you're a sorry husband or a sorry wife. Your problem is that you don't know God to the, to the level that you need to because God is love and anyone who does not love does not know God. You can use all the platitudes and the spiritual words and the theology books you want. You don't know God if there's not an evidence of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and patience toward those that are the hardest to love in your life. And this is love, that God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Is it possible that you have defined God in a way that has no basis in reality? And is it possible the reason that you are not acting right is because you are not thinking right? 
We've been listening to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. Next week, we'll continue in the Think series as Pastor Trent teaches on the doctrine of man. We'd like to invite you to one of our weekly worship services at Harvest Granger. Join us Saturdays at 5 p.m. or Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Hickory Road, just north of Cleveland Road in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit harvestgranger.org. We hope you'll join us again next week at this same time for Resonate with Trent Griffith, a ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger.